From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. As you're listening to someone's uh, story, you might even be thinking, why is it that they believe that in a judgmental way? You know, instead, what I'd like you to do is take a deep breath and say, I wonder why this person has come to have that belief. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and our guest today is Harry Webney Behrman, a longtime facilitator and mediator. We'll be talking about his Evolve essay, How to Have Healing Conversations About Israel-Palestine. All right, so since I got involved in Jewish life as a young adult in, in the late 1990s, a little ways back, since then, North American Jews have been talking about wrestling with how and why we can no longer talk about Israel, how one of the three core elements, along with Soviet Jewry, when that was a thing, and the Holocaust, the things that united most of American Jewry was now the thing tearing at its fabric. Things have only gotten worse in the past few years as our overall political environment has gotten more and more polarized, and so many of us have retreated to our own echo chambers. It's possible that as Americans face an election year and all of us throughout the world need to figure out what our post-pandemic society will look like, we need dialogue and facilitated dialogue more than ever. So Harry, our guest today, he was actually able to do that and lead that. Harry's essay for Evolve focuses on the time when he was a member of the Reconstructionist congregation Share Shamayim in Madison, Wisconsin. So from 2015 to 2017, Harry led a facilitated, organized conversation on Israel-Palestine that was started by the congregation and had participation and support, not only from other congregations, but also from the local Jewish uh, federation. And they actually had a sustained dialogue, I, I believe they met monthly, on the most difficult issues related to Israel-Palestine. So this group had broad communal conversations and people actually kept coming back for more. So how did they do it? How did they create and sustain interest? What lessons were learned? So even if communities can't replicate this model today because of social distancing, what can they learn now and for the near future when, when these kinds of things are, are possible again, if, if they're done right? So we're going to be talking about all of that. One important note on some of the things we won't be talking about. Um, the Israel-Palestine dialogue took place under what's called or known as double confidentiality, meaning that participants promised never to discuss what was said or what happened with anybody ever, essentially. So that made parts of this interview a little tricky and precluded some questions um, you know, I would have loved to ask such as what was what was the craziest and most offensive thing anyone anyone said, you know, I mean, in all in, in all seriousness, um, some of the nitty gritty of uh, in terms of what was discussed was off the table for this interview. Yet, despite these parameters, we were able to have a substantive and informative conversation um, about the dialogue process itself and the difference it can make for individuals and their communities. All right, as a reminder, 
all of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free, no paywall here, on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for the show, but we always recommend checking them out. Okay, let's get to our guest, Harry Webney Behrman. So Harry has served as a facilitator, consultant, educator, and mediator for more than 40 years. Along with his partner, Lisa Webney Behrman, he has served as the senior partner of Collaborative Initiative, Inc., a private consulting and mediation firm based in Madison. The couple now make their home in Ottawa, Canada. He is the author of two books, What Matters at Work, which was just published this year, and The Practice of Facilitation, published back in 1998. So, Harry, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Brian. Thank you. All right. So we're, we're talking to you in your, in your home in Ottawa. Um, how are you doing? What's your shelter-in-place situation life? So uh, I live in a... a condo uh, here in uh, West Central Ottawa, which uh, means that uh, we're upstairs, get to look outside, and as things warm up, get to open up the windows a little bit. Uh, But uh, it means that my partner and I are uh, taking turns being in the uh, confidential space uh, for each of us being able to do our work and alternatively uh, uh, hanging out with the dog to make sure he doesn't get overly excited when we're doing Zoom meetings. Got it. So how did you get into facilitating conversations and, and what do you call yourself? Are you a facilitator, a mediator, a trainer? So I'm all of those things, uh, depending on the context. When I define what a mediator is, I think of a facilitator who is specifically focused on being an impartial uh, resource for addressing uh, conflicts uh, among parties, Uh, whereas certain certain types of facilitation uh, do not require inherently that they're dealing with conflicts. Facilitators, though, in general, are really beneficial for helping navigate really complex conversations where uh, people really require uh, some uh, external attention to the process. I have been involved in this uh, work for about 40 years, which is a strange thing to think about. Uh, (laughs) I was in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in uh, Madison uh, and uh, was invited to become involved with a group called the Center for Conflict Resolution, which was one of the forerunners of uh, doing facilitated uh, conversations in a variety of settings. Uh, and they actually ended up writing some of the original manuals for uh, group facilitation and building consensus uh, that have been applied to many uh, contexts since that time. Uh, but. I got my start really in the field of dispute resolution facilitation in my work with CCR, the Center for Conflict Resolution. So before we get to the Israel-Palestine discussion, mm-hmm. which, is, which is really the focus of why we're here, I understand that um, you previously had done work um, bringing pro-choice and pro-life advocates together and i, I kind of yeah. want to hear about that and maybe how it prepared you for an equally a conversation that's equally potentially volatile so um in 1991 i believe uh i was invited to 
convene a dialogue between leaders uh, who identified as pro-choice and, and pro-life within the state of Wisconsin. And so we created a basic set of guidelines that I felt would be important for this to be a, a conversation that would have validity and integrity and welcoming. And then we were able to get four legislators from the Wisconsin legislature mm. to sponsor the initial invitation. Uh, and two of them were Democrats, two were Republicans, two were pro-choice, two were pro-life. Long story short, they found the conversations to be so worthwhile that they met for a year and a half. And through those discussions, uh, a couple of things happened. One was they came to a appreciate and respect that they had a, a high degree of common ground, even though they held really strongly divergent perspectives on this crucial issue in their lives. Second, that they uh, reduced the degree, I wouldn't necessarily completely eliminate it, but they significantly reduced the degree to which they uh, had been previously uh, demonizing one another, both publicly and privately. And thirdly, they engaged at the near the end of our time in a very public, courageous act, which was to announce to their particular communities together uh, the areas of common ground that they held. So, the the subject of um, the subject of your evolve essay was the um, discussion group formed um, in Madison, Wisconsin, um, started by. Uh, the Reconstructionist Congregation Shari Shemayim, and from what I understand, expanded to include um, members of, of, of the Jewish, the, the larger Jewish community there. Um, can you talk about the catalyst for, for that discussion group and how you came to be involved? Yeah, so the, the catalyst was really a recognition within uh, Shari Shemayim's leadership, both uh, from uh, Rabbi uh, Lori Zimmerman and the president of the congregation at the time, Jeff Spitzeresnik, that there was a need within the Jewish community to try to have respectful conversation regarding the future of Israel-Palestine. And they had found uh, materials that were developed by Josh Clemens uh, and others at the Jewish Dialogue Group in Philadelphia Sure. that were intended to guide such conversations. And uh, if I understand correctly, they involved Josh in convening an initial uh, larger group discussion uh, that Sharesh Shemayim hosted. I was not involved in that, but it had a, a positive response. And from that, Lori and Jeff felt that it would be great to see if there could be a community-wide effort at this. And uh, they were able to receive support, which I think is actually rather crucial, from the Jewish Federation of Madison to be able to sponsor such dialogues. And uh, I was invited, at, given my experience, uh, to facilitate those conversations. Are you a member of the, or were you a member of the Madison yeah. community? So I'm, uh, 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 I was a member of Sharesha Mayim for a number of years, so I, I knew both Rabbi Lori and Jeff through, through that, yeah. Um, so I know that Rabbi, Rabbi Lori Zimmerman of Sharesha Mayim has is, is, is really publicly spoken with a point of view on, on, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, you know, 
definitely mm-hmm. known as as having a perspective of of the left um you know how how were you able to it sounds like you were able to get um buy in from from the larger community and get different different perspectives in, in involved so how did you you know how did as a community or you as a facilitator how were you able to do that because i could see that being you know being an obstacle to getting off the ground so i think that uh rabbi Lori is perceived this way and, and of course has her own outspoken opinions on issues uh i think uh, more broadly sharay shamayim within the madison community at that time uh was seen as uh, a bit more uh progressive uh, politically than uh, much of the mainstream community. So these were obstacles that uh, needed to be uh, navigated. I think that the stamp of the Jewish Federation on this process was crucial, uh, as well as the co-sponsorship of several other congregations within the Madison community. So in that way, people knew that they were being invited for Uh, a conversation that reflected the message of the invitation, which was one of inclusion, which was one of respect for the various perspectives that people had, and uh, one that would be uh, professionally facilitated uh, by someone whose commitment was to uh, that kind of dialogue. You can't speak for those other, for the Jewish Federation of Madison or the other congregations, but was it your sense they felt that there was such a need for this this kind of dialogue and and maybe a weariness with with it being a third rail you can't touch that that might have been why they why they got behind it i i think that's a good point i think they got behind it because they saw the need uh i think they got behind it because the uh original argument that was made regarding the need was compelling and then they renewed their commitment. So we had two years of this commitment wow. because they saw demonstrated through the results of the dialogues that we were attracting a cross-section of people and we were succeeding in engaging people in respectful conversations that were beginning to respond to that need. And what was the actual physical setting and setup or did it or did it change from from month to month or or however frequently it it met so the general setup was consistent from month to month though the locations uh varied the setup was one where we had a dozen people uh sitting in a circle and uh and when they entered the room uh, I had the pre-registration, so I, I knew who all these people were, and, I, and there had been communication with almost all of them, if not all of them, in advance by email, uh, through which I had, again, clarified the intention of the conversation, also provided uh, materials. Uh, at first, those materials came from the Jewish Dialogue Group. As we went on and the process evolved, they included some other materials that were more topic-specific but they knew in advance what they were coming to. uh, And in that regard, uh, each session was very much alike. I would welcome everyone as they arrived, uh, individually introduce them to different people because chances were that they did not know most of the people. There were some light snacks, refreshments, you have to make sure you have some food. And, uh, And also there were ground rules posted on the wall Uh, that 
uh, were a flip chart paper that uh, I carried with me from month to month, now that I think about it. And uh, while the ground rules slightly uh, re were revised over time, for the most part, they were pretty constant. And so as a point of departure in welcoming everyone, I would clarify with them and make sure that the ground rules were acceptable to them for how we were going to conduct this conversation, I'd clarify the purpose of the conversation. And, and then we had a, a format for beginning that was consistent each time. Uh, I can say a little bit about that if you'd like. Um, yeah, I think our, our, I'd be interested to hear about the, the, the okay. ground rules. I mean, I, I assume no name calling is probably yeah. Yeah. So, the, so the the ground rules were, you know, one one person would speak at a time. We would listen fully and allow people to complete their their thoughts and perspectives without interruption. Uh, there was very importantly respect for the experiences that people had, so that the job here was to listen fully and not try to persuade. And I even would give people an example, as we talked about, I'd say, as you're listening to someone's uh, story, you might even be thinking, well, why is it that they believe that? And uh, in a judgmental way. And I'd say, you know, instead, what I'd like you to do is take a deep breath and say, hmm, I wonder why this person has come to have that belief. And then to look at myself and wonder, where am I curious? What's the source of that curiosity? And that was easier said than done, but to establish that tone right from the start was really important. Another thing that was important at the start was to uh, clarify confidentiality and how it was crucial that we not attribute any of the opinions that we were hearing or, the, or, or share any of the stories or experiences outside of that room. And people, uh, I think felt implicitly a greater sense of relief and respect for how their own stories would be treated through those ground rules. And having said that, one of the things that also came up early and it, it came up uh, on a number of occasions was people would say, well, can't I bring my honest opinions here? I feel strongly about this. I want, if I'm angry about something, I wanna be angry. And to be reassured, yeah, bring the full passion of how you're feeling. Bring the full experience that you have that has led you to that feeling. And at the same time, let's try to make this a safe space that allows others to hear that and allows you to hear those others. Okay, short time out here. We hope you're finding this a powerful interview. Do you want others to experience the same kind of conversation? Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave us a review. Positive ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. All right, back to our interview. You write in your, in your, um, in your work, up in your Evolve essay about uh, step-in, step-out questions. Yeah. I was wondering if you could give us examples and Sure. Did, did answers actually shape your, uh, you know, how you carried things forward? Yeah, yeah. So uh, several of these questions came from the Jewish Dialogue Group. So uh, we would begin uh, getting people comfortable with the idea of voicing their perspectives by literally having them uh, stand in the circle and step forward if something was true for them. 
Uh, in some cases, we had people who, for various reasons, were unable to step, literally. So we had other forms of indication. We just make it uh, inclusive around the circle. Uh, but, uh, you know, it would be increasingly risky. So uh, there might be a question like, uh, uh, do you follow current events regarding Israel-Palestine? Uh, and so it was a yes or no. Uh, have you ever been to Israel-Palestine? So again, there's a, a question about whether people have been there. Uh, have you participated actively in political activities regarding Israel-Palestine? That's a riskier question. So these kinds of questions begin to give people a sense of the room and one another and where they have areas of commonality and where they have differences. And it would then bridge into what became uh, a really powerful conversation, which was for one to think about one's own perspective. Where do you stand regarding the future? And we asked people to do this in a couple of steps. One was to use index cards that we passed around everyone to write down, this is where I stand and how I've come to believe this. And so you would do that individually, and it might be based upon things you've read, things you've experienced, whatever your story is, this is where I stand and how I've come to believe this. And then to partner with someone you don't know, and for the two of you to share those perspectives with one another in a conversation where the person who was listening was invited to do so without judgment, without sharing opinions, just to be present, to listen and understand. Some did that better than others, but that was the goal. And then as a result of that paired conversation, for the pair, to then generate a question together. Where are we curious? What would we like to discuss with this group? And that's how we generated the particular questions for that night. How much thought goes into terminology? I mean, even, even using Israel-Palestine, I think so many places and people that, that, that term would just would just sound natural other people I, I mean I, I I certainly know people with a certain political perspective they might bristle at that or it might yeah. make up like what are you talking about um, right you know Pal Palestine's not a country it's never declared independence right. and and right. they might they might not hear the rest of the sentence and and you know the same could go go for you know, any number right. of things the west bank right. i mean i mean terminology sure. is just inherently fraught how sure. do you how do you think about that with a communal conversation so i think in this regard uh the terminology uh for me has evolved uh and the terminology that uh might uh be considered to be appropriate in a given community will vary from place to place uh the terminology that was used at that time in those conversations was regarding the future of Israel and the Palestinians. So I am actually, in phrasing things today, expressing it differently than I did several years ago.
And, and what's, what's gotten you to that point? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's uh, both my uh, immigration to Canada, where I find the uh, framing of the conversation to be uh, more along the lines of using Israel-Palestine as uh, terminology that I'm exposed to. Uh, and I think over time, it's my own comfort with the uh, idea that uh, this whole uh, region is the traditional home of uh, both peoples. And for me to uh, label it uh, only in terms of the current state of Israel uh, doesn't give, in my regard, uh, appropriate weight to that sense of its identity to both peoples. So from what I understand, you conducted 22 sessions over over about two year period mm-hmm. you had a hundred you know at least 180 participants how yes. do you not only how did you generate that kind of interest but how did you how did you keep it up i mean a lot of these things uh you know can can peter out yeah well i think that the combination of rabbi laurie speaking regularly with other rabbis within the community uh, and Jeff speaking with other uh, congregational presidents and the Federation uh, supporting our messaging uh, in its monthly uh, newsletters uh, kept the word out there. I also think that the fact that the dialogues were themselves proving to be rewarding to the participants was then leading to participants telling others, hey, get involved, come to this, you will like it. Uh, and so there was more, I think it iterated new interest that way. I think that's one level. I think the second level of, uh, of how we sustained the energy was how the dialogues themselves evolved. In the first year, they were primarily for new people engaging in a first dialogue. Towards the end of that year, we began to create uh, items that lent themselves to conversation among people who'd already been involved in the dialogue because they wanted to dive more deeply into certain topics. And then in the second year, it was split about 50-50 between people who were brand new to the process and people who were uh, uh, coming back because they wanted to dive more deeply. So specific issues that were generated, and this is where we really uh, transcended the initial materials from Jewish Dialogue Group, had to do with uh, a couple of things that you've actually brought up. Uh, what about the West Bank? Uh, what about the future of Jerusalem? What about uh, settlements? Uh, how does the future of this region relate to the larger region? Uh, what about issues such as water rights? There were a number of topics that people were generating. And then because of the political issues of the time, there were also uh, new stories that would drive new topics. So it's not that we preconceived in, you know, in January of the year, all the topics that we would then bring forward the entire year. We kept on iterating, and I think in that regard, it was sustaining energy for participants, it was inviting new participants, and it was sustaining energy for me. It was very interesting for me to bring people together around new topics. 
At the same time, it was also really interesting for me, and I don't think this ever grows old, for me to have people sit down around a circle, engage in dialogue, who have very limited, if any, uh, known history of having done so, especially around contentious issues. I sometimes take for granted this facilitator bubble that I live in, where I get to bring together groups of really caring people and help them have conversations that live up to our human potential. I take that for granted sometimes, so it's really nice for me to bring people together in the ways we were in these dialogues to discover it anew. All right, another short break here. If you'd like to support the groundbreaking conversations of Evolve that happen on our podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or in the curriculum we're producing, you can support us, please. Please make a contribution to reconstructingjudaism.org slash evolve dash donate. There's also a donate link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and uh, thanks for all your support. All right, back to our interview. So one of the things I've, I've heard when, when um, North Americans, Jews, non-Jews tend to get together to talk about Israel, Israel and the Palestinians, Israel, Palestine, is that, you know, particularly with Jews, the, the conversation tends to be about North American Jews, Jewish identity and their relationship mm -hmm. to Israel as opposed to really reflecting or pertaining to the realities on, on the ground in Israel, mm -hmm. the West Bank and Gaza. I'm, I'm wondering how, yeah. you know, if that's, if that's the case, how you respond to it. Sure. So I, I think there's certainly that propensity. Uh, I think that one of the things that was uh, beneficial and fortunate about these dialogues is that many North American Jews have spent time living in Israel or have spent extensive time traveling in Israel. And then we also have a number of Jews in our communities. Certainly this was true and is true in Madison. Uh, people who are themselves Israelis and uh, who come to this from that perspective. Also, so many of us have family in Israel. So while that skew that you describe is certainly one that can lead to a shifting of the conversation into being uh, North American centric, uh, one of the opportunities that was also there was to recognize, wow, this is a blind spot. Where are we curious? How might we learn about it? And people were also really grateful for those people in the room who had spent extensive time in Israel and who did bring that experience of being on the ground to the conversation. So where did this, um, you know, I guess, how did this end? Were there, were there tangible results you could point to? Was there, was there a document of everything mm -hmm. we agree on? How did it leave off? So um, I want to describe the endings at a couple of different levels, if it's okay. Uh, one sure. is that a given conversation would end with people checking out and describing briefly how they were feeling now that they had been involved in this conversation. And it was an honest expression. Sometimes people would say plaudits of gratitude. Occasionally, people would say, I'm feeling very uncomfortable with the lack of resolution here and the lack of action. That's how they were feeling. But I think overwhelmingly, people 
had a sense of appreciation that such a space existed and a great deal of curiosity to have more such conversations. It was not an action-oriented dialogue. It was not intended to lead to a policy shift or political action, or even for that matter, uh, specific actions by your social action committee within your given congregation. However, individuals, because of the insights that they gained, were sometimes moved to bring those insights back to their communities. And as a result, I think in a positive way, they infected their communities with a new sense of hope about what was possible if we could only convene more of these kinds of conversations. I don't have any recollection of a tangible change. This is my meta level of the response now. I have no recollection of a tangible change within the Madison Jewish community uh, at a policy level or governance level as a result of these. And I checked in with Rabbi Lori uh, once you and I scheduled this to see, you know, did I miss something here? Uh, and she said there that her impression was actually similar to mine. Uh, she felt that individuals were strongly moved as a result of participating and that the Jewish Federation was also greatly appreciative that this all happened. And she also reflected on the idea that the Jewish Federation maintained its support for those two years. And the only reason we stopped was because they weren't in a granting position for that to continue. But they were very supportive. They appreciated the responses. We, we had evaluations and all those kinds of feedback forms and things to indicate levels of satisfaction, et cetera. But more than that, they, were pleased that we had been successful at getting people from the various communities across Madison to participate. So I'm glad for it. I wish we could be doing it now. I wish we could be doing it in other communities. And that's really my hope. Sure. And you wrote um, in, in your article that it was disheartening to learn that few of the other communities had adopted the materials developed by the Jewish dialogue group at the time, and that we could not get the mainstream Madison Jewish community leadership to engage further with the process. So why do you think that is? And what do you, what do you think would be needed to change it? Is it a question of funds? Is it a question of interest, uh, courage to commit to something like this? So to me, it's less a matter of funds because it doesn't need to cost much at all. It's more about uh, political courage and a recognition that such conversation is a critical one for the North American Jewish community to have. Uh, there was a great organization uh, that no longer exists called America Speaks uh, that was convened by a woman named Carolyn Lukensmeyer, who's now in Arizona. Uh, Carolyn uh, brought together people in different communities to have deep, meaningful conversations around powerful public policy issues at times of great need. If you look over my shoulder, you will see a poster from one of those conversations. This was the World Trade Center conversation. We, we see each other on video, by the way. So. Okay. And the World Trade Center conversation that America Speaks convened in July of 2002 was one that involved well over 4,000 people 
each in intimate conversations, dialogues of about 10 people per table, through which we were able to have meaningful, respectful dialogue, and then turn our attention to several questions that the mayor of New York, the Port Authority of New York, and others who were key decision makers needed public input on. Well, through that process, many of the uh, suggestions that were initially floated were rejected, and many new ideas emerged that ultimately led to what you now see at the site of the World Trade Center. I'm really privileged to have been involved in that as just one of several hundred facilitators, but it shows the power of what these kinds of conversations can do, and they've been applied to healthcare, energy planning and, and analysis, uh, the future of transportation, budget conversations. There are a lot of ways these can be applied, including the political issue that, and the really critical issue that you and I are discussing today. Talking about the post or whenever we're, we're, we're able to gather the, together the new in, normal. In, in person, um, since, since the, the Jewish dialogue group, which, which, which um, developed the model you use, doesn't appear to be particularly active right mm -hmm. now, do you have any advice for communities that might want to go through a similar process, how, how they get started? Sure. Well, uh, the Jewish Dialogue Group was advised by a group called the Public Conversations Project in developing their materials and their format. I know the people at the Public Conversations Project well. Uh, I actually, uh, it goes back to that abortion dialogue uh, that I was involved in in the, in the 1990s. Uh, so the people with the Public Conversations Project, uh, which is based both in uh, Washington, D.C. and Cambridge, Massachusetts, are an excellent resource here. Another uh, group that would be a, a really fine resource for people is called the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, NCDD. And they're actually a coalition of facilitators that convene uh, many different kinds of public engagement conversations, as well as smaller group conversations. And then uh, lastly, I would uh, refer them to uh, IAP2, which is the International Association for Public Participation. They have many resources and tools that you can use for facilitating a variety of conversations. That said, the materials are largely still useful. They were written in a way that aren't particularly time-bound. So in that regard, the stands that people take and the positions that they take as a starting point are often still the stands that represent the spectrum of opinion in uh, at least the American Jewish community, uh, and I, I believe in the Canadian Jewish community as well. Is there anything that happened in this in this process that, that you wish you could go back and change, or that you feel like you learned from? Oh, oh yeah, uh, I was taking contemporaneous contemporaneous notes at the time of the dialogues in order to inform my own experience with them. And I remember noticing how much uh, people really wanted to dive more deeply. So if I could uh, have a, a do-over, I would create even more avenues for people to dive more deeply. 
And I think the 90 minutes that we had was a, a really nice amount of time for most people. But I also think that if we had created another uh, model that would allow for those who were interested to uh, go in for two and a half or three hours, I think even there, uh, some things would have been possible that you'd just be skimming the surface on uh, in the dialogues that we had. So I think this this question is a good is a good place to um, to wrap up because I think I think it encapsulates um, a lot of a lot of your thinking on, on the process. You in in your essay you quote the theoretical physicist David Baum who who said the um, the ability to perceive or think differently is more important than the knowledge gained. And I, I wonder if you could explain what what that means and how it kind of shapes your view of, of facilitating conversations. Yeah. Um, so to me, one of the most powerful experiences that I have as a facilitator, whether I'm working uh, in dialogue such as this or I'm working as a mediator with people who come to me entrenched in a conflict, is the marvelous ability of people to uh, have an aha moment and from that aha to then dare to have an epiphany. And I say dare to have an epiphany because what often is occurring is the type of learning that occurs when you think that you have it all figured out and you realize that you don't. And that epiphany then is scary. And if we've been successful at creating a safe and constructive space in which to have that epiphany, then one can lower the boundary and say, you know, Brian, I realize something now that I really didn't get before. And one of the things that I think we kind of lack a lot of in our society is uh, the legitimacy, first of all, of being able to engage in such a conversation and let those boundaries down. And secondly, the validity, the value of being able to have those insights and not know exactly where they're going to take us. I may have learned something from you that runs contrary to what I previously thought was totally true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I now have a sense of what I'm going to do with that. And to be okay with the uncertainty, with the ambiguity of those feelings, with the various kinds of feelings that might be there, I think that's one of the things about dialogue and thinking differently and having a new perspective that draws me to it so powerfully. So I'm grateful for the chance to experience that with people and to witness what they do with it. And we were grateful to have your, your essay published on the Evolve website and to, to have you, Harry, on, on the show and, and to have a chance to, to, talk, about, uh, to talk about talking. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we appreciate it and, and, and certainly um, stay safe and, and healthy and, and uh, we, hope to, uh, we hope to converse again. Thanks very much for the chance, Brian, and you as well. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Harry Webney Behrman. If you enjoyed our conversation, 
please be sure to read his Evolve essay, How to Have Healing Public Conversations About Israel-Palestine. So, what did you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about creating meaningful conversations two ways, and that includes you. So send us your questions, comments, feedbacks, whatever you got. You can reach me directly. You can flood my inbox at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. Well, there's so much uncertainty, but you can be reasonably certain we'll be back next month with, with a brand new episode. Um, in the meantime, we don't, we don't know how the world is, is going to look. Stay safe, uh, stay healthy, stay, stay positive. We're, we're with you. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wax. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.